You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We'll start today with a little game of finish the sentence. You ready? You don't look ready. No one looks ready. You ready? All right, you can even shout if you want to. It's, a, it's, it's only 8.50 in the morning. So if you need to wake up a little bit, this is your opportunity. But finish the sentence, fill in the blank. Christmas is about Jesus. That's right. And good. Some of you, I, I kind of expected someone to say joy, or I kind of expected someone to say gifts and presents. I'm not surprised that you said Christmas is about Jesus, but I was hoping someone would say something else, believe it or not. There's another word that comes to mind when we consider the nativity, God made flesh, the incarnation. There's another word that drives what we find in the Scriptures about the arrival of Jesus and His birth. But it's not a word that always comes up at Christmas time. It is a word that comes up frequently in our fellowship together. It is a word that comes up regularly in our meetings and in our preaching and in our conversation and in our activities and the different things that we do in our discipleship path. Are you surprised to hear that Christmas is also about mission? For years and years and years, the church has insisted that the first mission trip was from heaven to earth. And it wasn't the mission of the church, it was the mission of God. There's even a Latin term for it, so you know it's a serious theological issue or topic if there's a Latin term. I'm not going to tell you what it is, you can ask me later. But it's the mission of God in Christ for us. The church for 1,700 years or so has used the words of the Nicene Creed that says of Jesus, He came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. That, brothers and sisters, is the mission of God. This is inherent, implicit, in the language of God with us, the infancy narratives of Jesus, whether it's Joseph or Mary, talk about God's work to save and how Jesus is God with us. The thing we're going to discover as we look at Matthew and Romans today is that Jesus isn't just God with us, He's God with them also. Is that He has come for Abraham's family, and he has come for the nations. His coming involves two things. We spend a lot of time talking about the first one at Christmas. We don't spend quite as much time talking about the second one, and that was evidenced by the way we answered our fill-in-the-blank just a few minutes ago. We talk about how Jesus has come to save us, We also need to talk about how he has come to save us for the purpose 
of making us his representatives. Jesus is God's mission to us, and his mission is to deploy us in mission to the world. And you're thinking, preacher, I just heard you read these texts, and typically the sermon is related to the text. Where is it? As we look at these texts closely today, we'll discover, using Paul's language, and we'll see this theme that emerges in Matthew's narrative. If we want to really take the nativity on board, then we need to embrace the reality that Christ has welcomed us, and that means I should welcome you. If Christ has welcomed all of us, then the people of God should have a life marked by peace and reconciliation and a life marked by seeking peace and reconciliation with those outside our walls. If Christ has welcomed us, then I should welcome you. And that defines our mission. Consider the Magi. <laughs> Travelers from the east is what we're told. Likely Persia. Which means when they showed up around Jerusalem and walked into Herod's court, the first thing the courtiers would have said is, y'all ain't from around here, are you? They're foreigners, aren't they? Which is a little bit surprising because we always hear that Matthew is the gospel for the who? For the Jews, right? And the whole gospel of Matthew in chapter 1 starts out with Jesus in his genealogy, Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. I mean, you don't get more Jewish than that. David, the great king who reigned in Jerusalem. Abraham, the patriarch to whom God promised, I'm going to give you a family so big, it'll outnumber the stars, and you will be my agent to bless the nations. When Paul describes Jesus in Romans 15, he is the answer to the promise to Abraham. He's the confirmation of the promise to the patriarchs. Abraham is the patriarch. So this deeply Jewish introduction with a genealogy stretching back through Hebrew kings and to the Israelite patriarchs. And yet, if chapter 1 starts deeply with deeply Jewish tones, chapter 2 starts with foreigners. So let that sink in for a second. Matthew's got a gospel to tell. He wants to tell us the story of Jesus' infancy and his childhood and his ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Chapter 1, he starts with Abraham, David, Joseph, Mary, angels, Jesus. Chapter 2, foreigner. kind of theology is he trying to craft for us? What is his point? In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men, magi, from the east came to, to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, 
and have come to pay him homage. Now, these are the kind of guys who would probably make us uncomfortable if they walked in the room. Not only are they not from around here, they're astrologers. Like they spend their time reading the stars, looking for signs in the heaven, and get this, they see a certain star, and so they set out on an international journey. You ever tried that? I'm just sitting out in my backyard on a Thursday night, looking at the stars, and there's a new one. I haven't noticed that one before. I think I'll go to Germany for a few weeks. Like We read this story, and it's so familiar to us that we have no idea what's going on, or not that we have no idea, we just don't take the time to consider it. Like in the ancient world, this wasn't strange, but in the 21st century, if you met somebody who just sort of made their travel plans based on new objects in the heavens that show up, you would probably think, all right, nice to meet you. I'm going to sit over here. And yet Matthew shows us an image of the nations flocking to Jerusalem at the birth of the Messiah. And there's a contrast in this passage, isn't there? It's fascinating that you have Herod, who is sort of called the king of the Jews, even though he wasn't, even, he wasn't actually Jewish. He was Idumean. He had cut a sweet deal with the Romans, lived in the lap of luxury, and did everything he could to safeguard his power, even if it meant executing members of his family, which he did. Occasionally, he would get the idea that someone in his family was plotting against him to take his throne, not unusual in the ancient world, and that would be the end of them. And then these foreign stargazers show up and ask the king of the Jews, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And Mr. Paranoia over here, excuse me, King Paranoia over here, starts thinking, <laughs> let's find this guy so we can deal with him. So you have these foreigners who show up to worship Jesus, pay him homage, and give him gifts. And then you have the king of the Jews, who isn't terribly welcoming, is he? He sort of feigns kindness to the Magi, but he's manipulating them. He's playing them so that he cannot offer hospitality to Jesus, not welcome Jesus, not pay homage to Jesus, but slaughter him. So Matthew's kind of taking this expectations and turning them upside down. Like, which one of these characters is a model for us? Who would you rather be in the story? You ever notice nativity plays rarely have a Herod? The Magi are there all the time. But there's rarely a Herod. Nobody wants to be that guy. We'd rather be the foreign stargazer. Because they embody devotion to Jesus and self-giving love. Not an easy thing to do to set off across a Persian desert 
traveling into the Middle East on the back of camels, likely. You don't just hop in your car and jump on the interstate or buy a plane ticket and fly wherever you're going. Serious preparations and sacrifices have to be made, and that's what they do, and they do it, and Matthew includes it because he wants his readers, he wants us to know that the nations are welcome at the manger. He wants us to know that Jesus has come down from heaven for us and our salvation, and not just us, them too. Interestingly, in this passage, we're the them. We typically don't read the Bible that way. We read the Bible kind of very self-centeredly. Jesus came for us and calls us to go to them, and that's true. But technically, or precisely, I don't think any of us are Jewish. You can correct me later if I'm wrong. But all of us in this room are in the same category as the foreign magi. We are the nations. We are the nations. The fact that we have the gospel at all reinforces the reality that the nativity is about the mission of God. To fill the earth with his beauty and his glory and his holiness and his majesty and his perfect love for the sake of the nations. And we are the nations. Before we go to the nations, the gospel has to come to us, doesn't it? So Matthew tells us this story about how Christ, even as an infant, welcomes the nations. How Christ, even as an infant, who has come from heaven, who's adored by angels, even as an infant, welcomes every nation to come and worship him and be joined to him and belong to him and experience the joy of fellowship with him. And the implication of that, of course, is Christ has welcomed the Magi if Christ has welcomed the Jews, Joseph, Mary, shepherds who show up, then those two very, 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 very different sorts of people have become a part of the same family. I said a few weeks ago something I've heard someone else say before, but occasionally I'm reminded. Occasionally I'm reminded of it. It's a little surprising to us, but a comment was made once that we, if the Spirit of God lives in us, we have more in common with a believer in Guatemala in whom the Spirit of God dwells 
than we do the people who live down the road from us who don't know Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. Because we don't really, we don't even think about the believers in Guatemala that much. <laughs> we just live in our bubble and we run in our grooves and we go through our habits and we kind of do the same things over and over again. And that's fine. However, as Christians, it is crucial that we cultivate a sense of God's larger purposes. And they are much larger than we've begun to imagine. Christ has come for the nations. And his spirit has come to the nations. And he has called us to take it to the places where it has not yet gone. Christ has welcomed us, you and me, and we find ways to welcome our neighbors and the nations to Jesus in reconciled love. We find ways to call them to repentance and to call them to faith and to call them to obedience and to embody the character of the one who shows up in a manger, who lowers himself, who offers himself, who condescends, who embodies humility, who does not exploit his divine status, but becomes, ain't no glory in a manger, folks. Not till Jesus shows up anyway. Christ has welcomed the Magi. He has set a pattern for us. And this pattern correlates with the rest of the gospel, doesn't it? Because at the very end of the gospel, what do we hear Jesus say? He has died. He has purchased our redemption. His blood has been shed. His body has died and been buried. And now he is raised and his disciples have come to meet him. And they worship them. And he says to them, you probably know it. If you do, say it with me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Disciple the nations. So Matthew, the whole gospel has this big, just think of it as big bookends, right? At the beginning and at the end, bookends. And how is it bookended? At the beginning of the gospel, the nations come to worship Jesus. And at the end of the gospel, he tells his church, you go take my perfect love and my commandments and my name and my kingdom to the nations fill in the blank christmas is about a mission to the nations and if we read the whole gospel not just a little bit here and a little bit there if we read the whole thing it's a little bit hard to miss isn't it at the beginning of the gospel the nations show up in bethlehem and at the end of the gospel, Jesus deploys his church to teach the nations to obey everything he's commanded because the gospel is about the mission. Christmas is about God's mission to save the nations. And it shouldn't surprise us for Matthew to say this. If you read the Old Testament, you see it again and again and again. Micah chapter 4, verse 2. Many nations will say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord when God's Messiah comes. 
If you flip over to Psalm 47 or plan to just look through it later, clap your hands, all you peoples, not just all you Israelites. Clap your hands, all you people, shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord the Most High is awesome, a great king over part of the earth. May it never be over all the earth. Verse 8, God is king over all of the nations. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. And when Jesus was born, the princes of the people gathered around his feeding trough in which he took his nap. This was anticipated from the start. The vocation of the people of God has always been aimed at bringing the glory of the Messiah to the nations and bringing the nations to worship the Messiah. The nativity is the coming of the Messiah. And that means we have a vocation to welcome the nations to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't drive everything we do, we have not yet reckoned with what Jesus has called us to do or who he's called us to be. And Christmas should be at the heart of our theology and mission. It is the foundation of our theology and mission. You want to talk mission? You talk about the mission of God. You talk about the manger. Paul, Romans 15, makes a lot of the same points, all the same points, but he does it in more of a lecture exhortation style, whereas Matthew does it in sort of a narrative style. A little context for you, Paul's never been to Rome before, he wants to go, but he hasn't been able to get that far east. West, excuse me. But he's heard about things in the Roman church. He's heard about how some factions have begun to develop. He's heard about how the minority Jewish population of believers is having some tension with the majority Gentile Roman population of believers. And it has to do with some of their scruples related to the observance of Torah, the Old Testament food laws. Because if you are a Jewish person and you live outside the Holy Land, like in Rome, then you know that all of the meat comes from where? The various temples. It's not like you... Hey, I'm going to go by the butcher shop on my way home from worship. No, the temple is the butcher shop. And the cows that you sacrifice to whatever god you happen to be worshiping that day, the leftovers get sold and you bring them home and have Sunday dinner with them. So if you're Jewish, and you don't want to take the chance that you've eaten meat that's been sacrificed to a false god, because you are deeply devoted 
to the five books of Moses, the Torah. You don't even take a chance. You just eat the veggies. You don't drink the wine because who knows what ceremony that's been used in. I'll just have a glass of water, thanks. The Romans, on the other hand, <laughs> have no scruples whatsoever, and they'll eat whatever it is. Beef, pork, whatever. They're good with that. They don't go get involved in the worship of false gods, but they don't have the same scruples that the Jewish believers have. And so you can imagine what it's like when they all get done from church and they stick around for the potluck. And somebody's brought the main course, and we're all pretty sure that came from the sacrifice to Zeus earlier today. Because that's where you get your meat, if you want it. So Paul talks about the strong, and he talks about the weak. The weak are the ones who have the scruples for Paul. Can't go there. Can't eat that. Paul says elsewhere he knows that you know it doesn't really matter because those gods are false gods, and we're not going to stress out over that. However, he tells the strong, the Romans, who aren't worried at all about what's on the menu. They're just ready. They're just hungry. <laughs> he says to them in verse, chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction of the scriptures we might have hope may the god of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with christ jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the god and father of our lord jesus christ jewish people gentile people stop arguing over the menu and be in, and live in harmony welcome one another so that with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, we read it a moment ago, chapter 15, verse 7, welcome one another. In what way should we welcome one another? Paul says, just like Christ has welcomed you. Which is going all the way back to Romans chapter 3. all the way back to all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there's no distinction, not Jew or Gentile. But all of them are justified by His grace as a gift through His atoning sacrifices, His atoning sacrifice, His blood being shed. To accept the penalty for our sins on our behalf. How has Christ welcomed us? He died for us. How has Christ welcomed us? He looked not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. How has Christ welcomed us? He put up with the failings of the weak. How has Christ welcomed us? He was patient with sinners. How has he welcomed us? He left the throne of heaven and made his bed in a feeding place. 
Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you. If Matthew gives us Jews and foreigners worshiping around the manger in which the Christ child lays, Romans shows us that that tension has not gone away a few decades into the mission. And Paul has to say, Jews and Gentiles must live in harmony. If Christ has welcomed us, if he's welcomed the Jews, if he's welcomed the nations, then I should welcome you and you should welcome me. Because if the people of God are divided, what does it say about God himself? That's why we talk a lot about radical hospitality in the life of the church. That's why we talk a lot about becoming a welcoming church. That's why we talk a lot about mission. That's why we talk about a lot about our neighbors and the nations. Because the very coming of Jesus is about the reconciliation of the nations to God. And that found its way into the DNA of the early church within the first few years. And if it's not a part of our DNA, we're not where Jesus is. Listen to Romans again. Listen to it through the lens of Christmas. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, that's the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus came to the Jews, just like Matthew said. Why? So the nations can glorify him, just like Matthew said in chapter 2. It's like Paul just summarized Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 right here in Romans 15. So the Gentiles, the nations, and remember, who are we? The Gentiles. In order that the Gentiles, the nations, that we might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will confess you among the nations and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Do we rejoice with his people? Having been made part of his people. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you nations, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, and this, friends, is a Christmas text. Isaiah 11. The root of Jesse shall come. The one who rises to rule the nations. You want to do Christmas? Do Romans 15. The root of Jesse shall come. And he's the king, not only of the Jews, but of the nations. I think Matthew's implying that, don't you? You got Herod, false king of the Jews, kind of propped up, compromiser king. And his relationship to the nations is one of manipulation and abuse and power plays. Jesus, the real king of the Jews, is also the king of the nations who show up with glad hearts desiring to offer him their wealth and their best and their riches, their very selves. 
both of these texts come together not only to instruct us that Christ has come to save us, but to give us a pattern. This is what Paul's doing. He's living into the pattern, isn't he? He's living into the model. Christ has come for us, and Christ has sent us for them. God with us, God with them too. If Christ has welcomed us, I should welcome you, and you should welcome me, and we better find out how to welcome our neighbors and the nations very quickly and with great urgency. You might think, man, this preacher talks about missions a lot, even at Christmas time. What else is there to talk about? What else is there? The gospel starts and ends with the mission of God and the mission of the church. The New Testament continues. Most of it written by a man who gave up every privilege to suffer so that he could plant churches. Multi-ethnic churches. Jew and Gentile. Because that's why Jesus came. He was a servant to the Jews so the promise could extend to us, the nations. The only question remains, the only question that remains then is who is your them? If Christmas is about God with us and God with them too, who is our them. Take a minute to think about it. It may be some people in the room. I mean, after all, Paul is not writing to the Roman Christians about evangelizing unbelievers. He's writing about to them. reconciling inside the church. He also is going to talk to them about evangelizing unbelievers and church planting a little bit after this because he's telling them that he wants to come and use their church as a base for his further mission westward to Spain. But there's the implication, isn't it? If a church is not reconciled and at peace in Christ and offered to him, rather than sort of heels dug in on our agenda or whatever else we may be distracted by, then we can't. Like, if we're not marked by welcoming to one another, we won't even begin to be reaching out to the nations. Like, if I don't welcome you and you don't welcome me, we sure ain't gonna welcome our neighbors. <laughs> They're not gonna wanna come! <laughs> you bring your friends and they come in and the tension is obvious. It is a church that is not at peace. Thanks be to God, I don't think it's like that for us. But imagine how much the mission would be handicapped if the church is marked by strife. So step, like number one, your them, my them, might be somebody in the room or in the church. And then we think about missions in terms of local, domestic, and global. Just think concentric circles. Who's my them in the room? Who's my them in the community? Who's my them around the world? 
how are we working to cultivate these things globally? I mean, do we have that kind of vision? I was overjoyed just a couple weeks ago. I was in uh, sitting with Manny by his desk, Pastor Manny, and uh, there were an envelope, a big envelope addressed to the Coppage family in Uganda, and it was filled with cards from the children's ministry. Because we want to be the sort of people who don't wait till we're grown-ups to get to be involved in the missions. We want our kids cultivating that question, who's my them? Who am I caring for who's outside the borders? Who am I cultivating a relationship with? Who am I welcoming? Who am I praying for? Who am I ministering to? Who am I partnering with? And yeah, all that doesn't come in cognitively when you're five. May not even come in cognitively when you're seven or when you're ten. But the practice of praying and encouraging and writing, the practice of week in, week out, regular, every quarter we're going to write to Guatemala, we're going to write to Uganda. Those sorts of regular, ongoing things form our affections and our loves. And later on, when the cognitive stuff clicks, it will click on a foundation of, I'm going to sound a little technical here, precognitive formation of our affections. My loves need to be formed. My brain will catch up later. I want to teach my kids to love the mission of God. And in loving it now, they'll understand it later. I don't sit around with my kids doing technical missiology. We just pray for missionaries. And we talk about the mission of God. And we talk about how much Jesus loves us, and we talk about what it looks like to embody that love. So who's our them? My heart is overjoyed to see a pile of gifts in our welcome area. Because those gifts are going to go to kids who won't get Christmas otherwise. are them like if Christ has offered himself for us if we are his them we've got to ask the same question we've got to pursue the mission of God not only receiving what Jesus offers but obeying the model he's offered us and given us. That's why we talk a lot about Christ-likeness. That's why we talk so frequently about other-oriented love, self-giving love, all these words that define and explain Jesus, these phrases, they define us too. They should. They should. Let's finish the way we began. 
Christmas is about. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.